because we do have so much to try to cover that we're not going to get as far along as we hope to. Um, I will tell you that I am willing to also set up the DVD at the end of the lesson for those of you who want to stay and watch and those who don't, no problem, you may be excused. <laughs> but the video is also good because she goes in and explains some of this a little a little bit more as well. And, and you know, just it's helpful when you hear it first one way and then hear it again from another person's voice. It, they come at things slightly different and then they help fill in gaps. It's one of the reasons I love to listen to pastors online, you know, preaching and teaching and they give, and if I can get enough of them on the same topic, then I can get a variety of things and throw out the stuff I don't think is right or that doesn't apply to what I'm looking for. So anyway, I love it. That's good. Okay, so prayer requests. How are things going with the prayer requests we've had so far? Follow up. Good? Yeah, I mean, my daughter's still, you know, well, it's only been a week. <laughs> Listen, a week, two weeks is nothing. It's, yeah, that's those ages. That's those years. They are hard. Yeah. Kathleen and I talked for many times about my own son and the issues we had and even my daughter when she went through all the hardships yeah. that she went through the difficulties the you know the discipline of the lord as well and you know there was a lot of it just it's hard on the parents <laughs> and you think you're done raising them when they hit 18 uh-uh never stop being a parent but there is a light at the end of the tunnel you do get there hopefully hopefully it's a phase Done, so good excellent and um y'all's home is doing better right you've got the mold under control and you've dry they put in new drywall and new i see so do hardwood yeah, I know. <laughs> That's what I told my husband. Hardware done everything. When I replace my carpet, it's going hardwood. I hate, except for in a bedroom, maybe, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, no, that's bummer. Okay. All right. So things are doing better. They're moving forward. Any others? Follow-ups? Yes. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Did you see? Oh my gosh! Wow, we are so excited to hear this. I wish we had known. Wait, was this at our church at Austin Oaks? Nice. Good for you, Steve. Amen. Praise God. Well, not you know, we already know you were in the family to begin with. You had been baptized by the Holy Spirit. So this was just that affirmation and public testimony, and that's that's a lot. I bet it was. You know, it's really it's a memorable thing. I still remember my own baptism at nine, you know, which because there, there's just something it just hardwires in you. You just, it really is an impressive moment. Those memorable times. And Michael. Oh, 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh. Uh, your children were baptized well, this? My, was my youngest Jordan was already planning. Uh huh. She's been talking to us since November, December about doing it. Okay. Uh, she was infant baptized in Methodist Church. Right. But right. Methodist Church before confirmation. We're, right. We're there. I understand there. Yeah. So she decided she wanted to do it. We're like, why don't we wait for warmer weather? She wanted to do it outside. Yeah. And this came up and she's like, yeah, let's do it. Oh, so that's awesome. She was actually the first one to go. And she's how old? Uh, she is 13. 13, okay. Uh, and then her best friend, who is not in the blessed situation, uh, was with her. And she was one of the spontaneous ones. Yeah. And then my oldest daughter, who had also been baptized, was on the trip with you, yeah. decided that Jeez, so I drove home for wow listen to all these people we have we have got all these That's these right. wonderful things this is awesome yes well we praise god for everyone who makes a public testimony that their faith is in jesus christ and yeah he who confesses me before men i will confess him before my father who is in heaven god you know it's really it, it is um it's exciting to see what's going on in the church. I think right now, even in the midst of all the difficulties that we're having in our nation and um, in the world. Um, and I, I watched a, uh, another sermon just yesterday where the pastor it was uh, John MacArthur and he was preaching out of um, Romans 1 and talking about how this relates to the world today and what's going on nationally with us as a nation. Why have we gone down this path that we've gone down and what has been the consequence or the result of this free liberal thinking that people have wanted to push on our society? And it was excellent. But he talked about the, the, the delusion of the mind. But at the same time, there's this counterbalance that's going on in the spiritual realm for those who are coming into faith where it's, it's almost like it's, it's proving or it's revealing the true faith walkers, those who are truly walking with God, because they're like cream, they rise to the top, right? And so it's encouraging for us while we are fretting over the world, we are re rejoicing in the salvation of so many. And, um, and I do think in a lot of ways, the things that are going on in our world, it's, it's like very much like what was going on in the days of Daniel, when you're under that kind of persecution and that kind of hardship and that kind of heartache, it's, it, it is one of those things that for most people, those hard times are what push you to make these decisions for God. It's when somebody you love is dying or you're dying or, or your whole world is just blown up that, that you run to God. And so that's what we're seeing happening right now in our world. It seems like there's the cream rising for those who are coming into faith and then we're exposing the evil deeds of the world as we begin to walk holy in it. So an awesome thing. Any special things that we need to pray about this morning? I would ask for my Lord's best friend. Lots of prayer for her, her walk in faith. She so okay. yesterday. Um, and just her family. Okay. Teenagers. Yes. Okay. Do you want to say her name or no? Uh, we can just say. Lillian. Oh, Lillian. That's fine. We don't need it. <laughs> okay. God knows. All right. Is Michelle on the video? Michelle, what's the brother's name? 
Oh, uh, no, I don't think so. I can't tell. It's hard for me to see. On <clears throat> no, she she's not on the video. Okay, thank you, somebody, whoever, because you guys could see it because you're sitting right there. But I, I, right, it's a blur. I see little tiny light, <laughs> and I see me, but I can't really see you all. So, sorry, you're here with us in spirit and heart. And your voices are heard <laughs> when you want them to be, right? Okay, let's, Amen. let's thank you. Uh, let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Father God, we humbly enter into your presence this morning. And Father, as Daniel did, we just want to lift up your holy name in so many ways. The things that uh, you have done for us, the great things that you have done for us to bring us salvation and to enrich our lives and to warn us of things coming and to encourage us about the things that are yet to be. Father, we're just thankful for your word. We're thankful for your grace and your kindness towards us, your loving kindness, Father, that you speak your word and you do it, that you keep covenant to those that love you and walk with you, Father. You are a God who is consistent and a God who is righteous in all his deeds, even in judgment, Father, it is a righteous judgment. And so, Father, we just are praising you this morning and thanking you for who you are. And as we move into coming to understand even yet more about the things that you have planned ahead, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would fall upon us in a way that would open our eyes of understanding because Father, we truly seek to know you and to know your will and to know your, your future plans. And Father, you gave them to us so that we would know them, not that we would be confused, but Father, that so that when you fulfill them, we would know that you are God and that you've spoke them and therefore you do them. And this is just an amazing gift to us, Father, in your word. And as we uh, have a relationship with you and as we watch you work in our individual lives as well. Father, we thank you for all these things. Lord, we lift up um, these young young children, really, they're youngsters, these teenagers in our lives that are seeking for you and who have often really difficult circumstances in their lives, but also who in themselves, there's this striving that goes on with you that Father, we just pray that there would be a, a bowing of their knee to you and a lifting of their eyes that they might gaze upon who you are and all the things that you have promised for them. And that, Father, they would willingly submit their lives to you, that they would see that, um, God, you are good. And therefore, you could be trusted because of who you are. And that there is nothing else, Father, everything that we need for life and godliness is found in you and through your word. And so we ask, Father, that you would just fall upon um, Lillian and uh, all the things that's going on in her life specifically, but also for all of our children. Some of them, you know, are older, 20s, 30s, 40s. Father, they're still our, our children and we love them and we desire so much that they would walk with you. And so we just ask that you would draw hearts, draw their minds to come to see truth. Father, now bless us this morning. Give us um, opportunities to really discuss this in a way that's meaningful for us and that will help clarify things. And Father, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so let's let's get started on. Oh, I got to set my timer so that I don't lose track. Let's see. I'm going to set it for about an hour and 20 minutes. Let's see, that'll be 9:30, quarter till 10. That'll be about right. And that'll give me a little bit of wind down time at the end because we're gonna probably need every minute of it to, because when we start getting into this, it gets it can get time, time consuming. So I'm gonna to try to do this quickly. Okay, first of all, I did prepare just a smidgen of a kind of a devotional, but what a, it's really more about preparing your minds to come to a, a, a concept of understanding concerning God and what he's doing in all of this, you know? So often what I see is a real resistance to understanding why it is that God, is, God has chosen a nation. You know, why is Israel special in the way that they are? Why is it that God seems to have illuminated them or brought them to the forefront of the, of the world visually? You know, what is, what is he doing in all that? So what I want to do is first and foremost, just to remind you that from the very beginning, God had a plan for all of humanity, every man, regardless of, uh, you know, generations and family relations and uh, skin color and nation connection. I mean, none of those things matter. God looks at the heart of each, each individual man and he desires that they be saved. So let me just read one of the best books in the world out there, I think, to help you understand, you know, the goodness of God and what he desires for you and I in our faith walk for sanctification is Ephesians. Ephesians is a double themed book and it says you have been blessed in him to walk in him. And so what you see back and forth as you go through the book of Ephesians is this flipping back and forth between it's all by grace. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. He's freely given you this. He's done this of himself. He did it in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Then he flips over and he says, and therefore you are to do this. And then he lists these things. So if you, if you are um, ever doing a study there, keep that in mind. It's a double theme. And so you're, because one of the things we had problems with when we were going through it was how do you title a book that one chapter, it's about what God's doing and the next chapter, it's about what I'm doing. You know, and I'm going, wait a minute, it isn't about what we're doing. This, that's a response to what God did. So if you're consistent, you, you hang tight on the higher calling, which is what Christ did for us, what God has done for us, that we have been blessed in him, right? And then the secondary uh, title could be what it is that we are to do in response to that according to that chapter. So let me just start, though. Ephesians 1, it talks about, it says, God chose us. In him, in him, Christ Jesus, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So it isn't that he chose me, Katie Phillips, but that he chose me, a human being, in his son, Jesus Christ. The emphasis on the, on the how you are chosen is upon the, pro, on the, um, the plan through which you would be chosen. And therefore, the, all the emphasis is that it's God that did the choosing because God chose through his son to redeem man, all of man, right? So God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, that we would be holy and blameless before him. There's that two-sided message. And he said, so we are chosen in Christ so that 
we could be holy and blameless because guess what? <laughs> we can't. <laughs> and another, so therefore, that's why we know it's not me chosen before the foundation of the world. It's the plan was chosen before the foundation of the world so that I could be holy and blameless before him. So the, the plan would be wor worked out through Christ Jesus. And it says the mystery of his will, he purposed, he purposed it. Now that makes me think of where we see throughout the, the book, actually the whole book of Daniel, but specifically in uh, chapter nine this time, we kept seeing that little word decreed or determined, right? And did anybody happen to do word studies on those things? Okay. It's mentioned three different times, all three times it's the same word. Although there are variations of what, how it's used, you know, grammatically, the definition is the same. And that is, it's a predetermined things. It was a, it was, basically a commandment by God. God determined it, God decreed it, God said it as a fact of, of matter of fact to be uh, accomplished. So it's um, in this case where he says the mystery of his will, he purposed. In other words, Jesus is his predetermined, predestined, decreed plan, okay? This is in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. It goes on. That's in that's in Ephesians three eleven. So the purpose of having chosen him was in order to accomplish the will and the plan of God. And then he says, God our Savior wants all people to be saved. He says that in First Timothy two. So it's not that God picks one out and leaves another behind. It's that God had a plan. It was His Son because why? He wants everyone to be saved. So the factor in that is that we must then respond, right? God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then, then in 2 Peter, it says, he does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Therefore, John 3, 16, who knows that one? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life, right? Um, so he says concerning that it's done so that, now here's an interesting part of this. If you're looking at the subject of the will of God, the, the decreed will of God, the plan of God, there's a lot of different um, facets in it. No, there's a plan for this, a plan for this, a plan for this, but the, the overall concept is God has a plan. He doesn't do things by happenstance. It's purposed. So, but he does it for this reason, he says in Philippians 2, so that the name of at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue exactly will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How? Why? To the glory of God the Father. So everything goes back to the glory of God the Father. Now, um, I'm not sure if it was last week or the week before, but I had read something out of Ephesians to you all. And I think it was in, or not Ephesians, um, Ezekiel 36, where we talked about why was God doing the things that he was doing with Israel in, in this time? And it was be, for what purpose? For Yes, so that you will know I am the Lord. And he does it so that I might vindicate my holy name. Why did he have to vindicate his holy name? 
Yeah, because Israel had profaned it among the nations. The nations looked at them. Those are some things that we looked at this week. What is it that they had done that caused their captivity in Babylon? And what had God also done in response to that? He had followed the decreed plan. He executed it. And then he also, in the midst of that, gave them a hope for a future. That, that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I have, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a hope and a future. And this is in, in right in the context of that word, that word's con, contextual surrounding is him speaking to Israel as they're about to go into their captivity or as they're in their captivity. I'm not sure which it was now, but they're in their captivity to Babylon. He's saying, look, I have a plan. It's a good plan. It's to give you hope in the future. And so in the midst of him decreeing something, him executing something, sometimes horrible things, right? Because as consequences, but then he also still yet gives hope for the future. So how did he do this? How did he, in Christ Jesus, bring about the glory of God in the eyes of the nation? It says he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved Christ. That's back to Ephesians 1, 5, and 6. So again, full circle is God has a plan. The plan is for all humanity. So don't ever lose sight of that as we're looking at Daniel. Daniel is right now honed in though on a specific plan, another plan, a decreed plan. Now what we need to do is come to understand why did God have this decreed plan for a, pl a place, a people called Israel? As we know, as we all know, you know, this was a nation that was created by God himself. So it wasn't like these were a people who came about because of the will of man or the desire of man. But God took a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah, and they, she conceived in her old age beyond the years of, of being able to conceive and gave birth to a son. And through that son, God then made these promises to Abraham. I will give you a land, a seed, and a nation. I will make you a nation. And nations of people will come from you. Kings will come from you. And he made these promises. Now, here's what we have to come to see. God's will for all mankind is worked out through the nation of Israel and his, uh, as his servant. So if we can stop seeing Israel as something detached from us, but see them as the tool through which God conveys who he is and he shows himself, he declares himself, he reveals himself to the world, then instead of them becoming something that we should be jealous of, or resentful of, which some people are, then what we would see them of is, oh, this is the kindness of God to me. Because through these people, God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to the whole world. Because why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he goes on, he says, for man's sake, God determined and decreed events. He proclaimed them through his prophets and then performed them. He did that so that men would hear, see, and believe that he is God and respond both in worship and praise, right? That they would be obedient and follow. So Jeremiah 29 tells us that this is what he did. He said that to Israel while they were in their Babylonian captivity. 
And then about them, he said this, this is how we know this is true, that they were chosen to be the, a witness. It says in Isaiah 43, 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there is no God uh, formed and there will be none after me. This is Isaiah's message. He tells of the Lord's incitement of Israel and Judah, and then he foretells their deliverance. Isaiah 43, he says, the people whom I formed for myself, right, will declare my praise. That's what the purpose of Israel is, is that God would be proclaimed in the world and praised through the activities, through the lifestyle, through the living out, through the obedience of a people, and then through the blessings that they receive because of the God whom they follow. That's, that's important for us to understand. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you Israel in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name, my holy name. I make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, this is out of Ezekiel 39. Behold, it is coming and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. So he has something he's going to do in Israel. And when he does it, people are going to see it and they are going to say, he is the Lord. They are going to recognize that he is actually a God who says and then he does. Right. All right. So I laid that out for you at the beginning. I mean, it, it, he's good. Well, he does say, let me read this one more verse. I forgot it was on the back. Uh, Ezekiel 39, 25, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous. Why? For my holy name. He's not being jealous because he has picked out a special people that they're so great and that we should envy them or should be jealous of them. But rather what we really should do is understand that Israel, they, they were bearing a very big responsibility in covenant with God. And of course, they didn't do such a great job. And then God had to fulfill the other things about him. But now, as we look at these things that God is doing with Israel, as we look at, um, at the captivity and the harshness, the harsh treatment, the death of many, right? What is it that helps us to hold fast to the fact that we know our God, who is called God Most High in the book of Daniel, that he is a God that is not being unfair to a specific people group. Or for that matter, if we want to bring it forward to us, that he's not being fair to us when he judges someone who does not bow the knee to God. When he makes a judgment and they are sent to ever 
everlasting darkness, as it says in some of the scriptures, right? That they spend eternity in hell. Is that fair? Is our God fair? So what did we learn this week? That's the first thing I want to open with is just to look at your notes. You were to make a list on Daniel and a, miss, a list on God, the things that you learned about them. Now, I so I just want to go through Daniel 9 and any other points of thought on this concerning who our God is. You can, anything in, out, of, out of Daniel and the whole, the whole book, that matter. What have we learned about the, the character and the characteristics, the qualities of who God is? yeah yeah okay and that's in verse 14 9 14 also in seven right just a, he meant interesting the way this they are all over in chapter nine chapter nine makes a contrast this is why i always want to talk about the book of genesis that how it introduces us to uh, to God in that book. It's the first book of our writings in the, in the scriptures. Why does, what is most prevalent in that book is who is God? Who is man? Who is God? Who is man? Who is God? Who is man? Man is always on the, the short end of, of the picture, right? They're falling into sin. They're committing acts of murder. They're in rebellion. They're doing all kinds of things. And on the flip side, God is, God is righteous. Okay. He's righteous. Even in judgment, he is righteous righteousness is a counterbalance also to the subject of grace. What do we know about grace? Uh, it's undeserved. So although we can receive the grace of God through salvation, is that fair? Because are we not sinners also? Yeah, but what is it that cancels that out for us that judgment will not fall upon a believer? That's right. There you go. So now... There. So now you're back to Ephesians chapter one. How is it that we are brought into faith? How is it that we are brought into an eternal relationship with him that we that we would be blessing him to walk in him? It, because it's through his son. If you ever do Ephesians, you need to go through and circle all of the the modifiers to the name of Christ in him, by him, through him. And it's over and over in him, in him, in him. How are you chosen in him? So, oh, it's him that the emphasis is on, not me. It's in him, through him, and by him, and for him. Yeah, right. Okay, so, so the fact that he's righteous balances what we're looking at with the judgment and the, and the future judgment that we see coming, which for most of us is a, a kind of a scary thing before you study it. Once you've studied it, what you realize is, even in that plan, God has a work that he's doing. And what is he heading towards? What is his ultimate goal in what he's going to be doing in those end times? That we might really come to faith in him. Yeah. And, and literally, Romans uh, 11 says that all Israel might be saved, that he might fulfill his word through that nation so that the whole world would see that he is God and turn to him and bow their knee. Okay, so righteousness. What else did we learn about him? What are some of the other qualities and characteristics? Yes. Good, explain that to us. 
Yeah, and loving kindness, because that is a term. For those of you who have not done a covenant study, there is a word phrase that you see throughout scripture, loving kindness. And loving kindness is a direct, in direct relationship to the subject of covenant. Covenant and loving kindness are almost, they're not synonyms, but loving kindness is the outflow of covenant. Covenant sets in a, a legal standard by which God does not break his word. And man is not supposed to break his word, right? But we do. But then God, because of covenant, because of the word he spoke, because he made a promise, therefore he keeps pouring out loving kindness. What are we, what are we seeing with the subject of Daniel and, and the people that are now in captivity? What, what's been going on with Daniel throughout the whole book so far? He's been in distress. And what is God doing for him? Pouring out on him what? Loving kindness. He, may, he gives him favor with the people who are over him. He gets promoted and put into great positions. God blesses him with insight and understanding about things that no one else can know. This loving kindness keeps being poured out on him because of covenant. And Daniel, in the midst of this nation who is being unfaithful, Daniel and his three friends are examples of those who are walking faithfully with God. And therefore, what does God do? pours out his loving kindness. What we're going to be seeing though here as we enter into the, um, the reinstatement of Israel back on their land in the days of uh, Cyrus and of Artaxerxes, right? He, what we're going to see there is again, loving kindness. Does Israel, the nation deserve to go back to her land, to get to have her temple again and her walls and her city? No, no, most definitely not. However, there is a remnant in the midst of them that are praying. And it wasn't just Daniel that was praying like this. Did you notice that when you went into Nehemiah? What was Nehemiah doing? Wasn't it interesting that his prayer was almost like a, a companion prayer to what Daniel was doing? Lord, we deserve this. Lord, we are the ones that broke the commandment. Lord, we were the ones that were unfaithful, but you are faithful. And for your sake, for your name, for your holy city, right? He calls upon a, a um, vindication, basically, through the actions of God as he works with the nation of Israel. He's going to vindicate his holy name, putting them back on their land is going to vindicate his holy name. Okay, so um, he keeps his covenant. He keeps his loving kindness to those who love him and keep his commandments. In the context of this, why does it say it that way? If I fail to always keep his commandments, it, am I in danger of him not showing me loving kindness? Well, you're demonstrating no. your love for him by obedience. Right. It's simply an action that demonstrates I have, have this faithful commitment to him or that I am in relationship with him. So it's a demonstration that I am saved. But if I fail in it, do I lose it? No. And why is that? Yeah. And because I'm in a different covenant. I wanted to bring... There you go. I have now entered into the new covenant of God in Christ Jesus. He's he made this promise through Ezekiel. In that day, I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel. He's going to do it also with the house of Israel one day. Hasn't gotten to that part yet. Although he has established that covenant, the nation has not entered into it yet. The nation of Israel is still in their rebellion. And yet what is he doing? He's pouring out loving kindness. He's bringing them back to the land as he said he would. The ultimate goal will be to bring all Israel into faith. And how is he going to do that? What does that mean? We're going to get there. That There's a lot more detail on that. But to start out by understanding that God loves all people, so we're not neglected in any way in this, but that Israel is being a vessel through which God is demonstrating to the world who he is, right? And then as he does what he says, he proves himself to be God. And therefore, people will then bow their knee, they will worship God, and they will come into faith. So here we say he keeps it. But in this one, in Daniel 9, it says, for those who love him and keep his commandments, they are going to receive the loving kindness of God. So the distinction with this one in Daniel 9 is context. Context rules for everything. Why does he make it sound like there's a chance that you won't receive loving kindness from God if you don't keep it? Well, because what kind of covenant was Israel the nation in with God? A conditional covenant. It was not the covenant of faith through Christ Jesus. It was not even the Abrahamic covenant, which is also by faith. Right? So Abraham believed God, period, believed him. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And in the New Testament, it says, what did he believe God for? The seed. God said, I'm going to give you a land to seed a nation. And who is that seed? Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.16. And that seed is Christ. So those two covenants are covenants of grace. And those are the covenants by which if you enter into them by faith, you are saved. But in between is another covenant. It's the covenant of the law. This is where Israel was. Their covenant that they were living under was a conditional covenant. And we looked at that this week. And so we're going to talk about that in more details in just a few minutes. But I, what I want to do is just bring that up to you again so that as we enter into this conversation here, in your mind, again, you need your little boxes. And we're in the box of conditional covenant with a nation for the purpose of God revealing his glory to the world. The box is, this is a conditional covenant. And this is a people that have been disobedient and therefore have reaped the consequence of the condition. The condition is, if you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will curse. And so this is where they're at at this point in Daniel. They're under the curse of God, meaning the discipline of God right? The consequence of their sins. All right. So this is who the, our God is. He's a God that makes covenant and he pours out loving kindness on those who love him. And uh, he also had a prophetic word. This was interesting to me. As we're going through the book of Daniel, what is God revealing through these dreams and visions? The, the plans for the future, the plans of the nations, the plans. And the ultimate goal of the whole thing is what? The kingdom of God that's going to come. When the saints are, are also vindicated, they're rescued, right? And they're brought back on their land and they're made to be the people of God that God promised them to be a nation who would be called by his name. 
and so he says it basically his prophetic word through these things that we're looking at forewarned them didn't it so this is a quality and a characteristic about god that we learned this week he's a god also speaks but he speaks to forewarn and it gives people an option of choice to obey god or disobey to have faith to believe or to walk in unbelief or disobedience or rebellion um Yes. Doesn't that blow your mind that we have a God that, I mean, he is so, he's so big that he watches over the entire universe, not just the earth, but the whole universe and the things in heaven and the things on earth, the, the angelic beings and all that's going on there, plus what's going on here. And he watches over all of it. And yet also, what does he watch over? Us individually. That's pretty profound of a thought that he is so big that he can watch over it all, but he's also intimate with the individual. Each one of us in this room, he's, he's intimately involved in our lives and he knows what is going on and he wants to be a part of it. Um, any other thoughts about who God is? Yes. Compassion in an 18, full of mercy, right? And, of course, again, forgiving. Um, what about, how do you view the idea, what do, or what quality do you see in God when it comes to this subject of the 70th week, that God says, I have determined or decreed 70 weeks? Um and it's and at the beginning of this, he also mentioned another time reference where he said, I was reading in the book of Jeremiah and I noticed what? Yeah, that there was, he was approaching the end, the end of that which had been decreed or, or marked out or set out or decreed. So he, I'm going to pull up my homework here for a second i have i have so many lists i can't i almost got overwhelmed with i just thought i could i could teach an entire less lesson on just one of these little lists i have in here Heart, so much to cover um so he said um in the first year of darius's reign i daniel observed in the books of the number of the years which was revealed as the lord the word of the lord to jerusalem the prophet for the completion of the desolation of jerusalem namely 70 years so he had spoke to jeremiah and he said i have determined 70 years so what quality or characteristic do you see about god in even in his actions towards bringing about discipline okay first of all he has a timetable right Yes. Right. He said it would be 70 years and it was 70 years. Right. Now, I know that there are some people who like to get into the numbers and the, trying to do all the dating on this. I'm telling you, it is a difficult thing to do. And it's not because what God has written is not true. It's because our dating systems keep changing. And also you have to understand what the mindset of the person who's writing is, is thinking under. Is he thinking through the mind of a Hebrew or is he thinking through the mind of the 
of the time frame in which he's living in at the moment. Which calendar is he working off of? And is he talking about uh, in, uh, inauguration years or is he talking about uh, co-regency years? I mean, there's all these factors that can make a difference as to where your starting date is, right? But one of the things I think is most important to remember is that God says it and he did it, right? Whether or not we can figure out exactly the years or not is really quite irrelevant. What's more relevant is we know for a fact, historically, God took them into their captivity and then he released them. And the year time frame, no matter which number you start at, gives you close to that 70 year time frame. I can guarantee you there it was exactly 70 years. Whatever God meant, he did. We just can't always figure it out all out. And therefore, when you go to your commentaries, you start reading commentaries, they're all arguing about, you know, well, was it this? Was it that? Well, it really doesn't. That part to me does not matter. Now, Precept has come up with a dating time frame to work off of that they feel works uh, correctly and that results in the right dating time frame. But the one thing that they do that most of your commentaries don't they back it up with additional scripture. They go to cross references to show you why they think what they think is, is the right uh, answer. And in the end of it is what precept says is God spoke and he did. He said he would and then he did it. And so for us, as we are looking at this, if you're a person that wraps yourself in knots around the, the exact dating and when is this and when is that, kind of try to allow yourself to let some of that go because scholars have been arguing over this for eons. One of the things I heard just this morning on um, my Hebrew guy, Barak, Baruch, I guess is his name. He's in Israel and he teaches out of the Institute there. And he, and he was saying that um, the dating, what was he saying? Now it just slipped my mind. I gave you too much background. Lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's really sad. But that the but that the date was that my husband yelling at me? Oh, good. <laughs> Kristen's here. <laughs> Yay. Okay. So the the dating system on this is set up such that we can see a beginning and see an ending, and that even in the Septuagint, this is what he said. The Septuagint even sidesteps it. When they give their translation in the Septuagint about how uh, the dating is figured out, they don't even address it. They bypass it. Why? Because there's so many controversial, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And every one of these scholars, of th th this is their whole life, their whole world is about think, you know, figuring out these dating systems. Um, they can't even come to an agreement of exactly these dates. So what we have is, a, I think, a fairly good one. We have one that we're going to start with today that we're going to cover that is dated by our, our basic understanding of the chronicles of the kings that were recorded when they were in office and what the scripture says about who was in office at the time certain things were said. And that's where, where we're going to springboard from. So what we're going to try to do, again, as we always do, is not add to and not take away from the word of God. And we're going to not fret over uh, the technicality of it, but rather the message of it, which is that God said from this time until this time, these things are going to happen. 
and then have those things happened? And the answer is most of them, yes. There's still a few things left undone. And those are the things that are yet future. We're really completely aware of those, having already done the first eight chapters of Daniel, that there's a time yet future that has not yet come to be. Okay. So that kind of, I mean, honestly, that was a very poor, um, yeah, go for it. <laughs> That's a very poor coverage of all the homework you guys did because we did so much. If I went through, what are your key words? What are you, hey, Kristen, <laughs> glad to see you. Um, if we went through all of those, we would not get through what we've got to get through here. So let's let's try to dive in and try to hone in on the most important part, which is to try to figure out this timeline. Now, Kay gave you a timeline to fill out in your homework, right? And what I'm going to do is back it up just a little bit, <laughs> all the way back to Daniel 1.1, because I want you to get all of the points of what we've studied thus far in Daniel on your timeline so that you will know. She started you at, on, your, on your, your timeline, she gave you at 445 BC, but we know we've covered quite a bit before that already. So let's just back up and see if we can't fill in all of that before it. Let's let's yeah i'm going to start in a different timeline that so you're going to want to have a timeline on the i gave you sheets and a ruler on your table there you can just draw a, a line on your piece of paper so that you can timeline with us and we're going to fill this out we're going to start at 605 bc why is that why do we start in 605 because of nebuchadnezzar and daniel Daniel in chapter one, verse one begins 605 BC. We know that by looking at history, again, we're just looking at history. We're looking at the recorded record. We know that on the records of these kings, 605 BC is the time frame. So starting in 605, let me see if I can get all my colors out here that I need. Um, God made a declaration at the beginning of Daniel 9, verse 24. Just before that, though, he he's introduces to us in verse 20 to 23 that Daniel has been praying. Now, we've covered all the prayer, those first few verses. Goes into elaboration on why they're where they are, right? He makes his confessions and he makes his pleas. Oh, listen, if you did just a subject uh, study on prayer right there, you can go through, you know, that old um, um, acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, right? Daniel basically does that. The whole, the whole thing is done exactly in that manner. Now, he jumps around a little bit. He actually starts with, with adoration of God, who God is. And then he slips in there the contrast between God and man all the way through that like you had said about the con there's so many contrasts in here. Then as we get into 20, he says, now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, that's cool. While I was still speaking what does that make you think about when you're praying while you were while you're still speaking while you're still in that prayer you haven't even finished it what what's going on in the heavenly realm 
God is already engaged. He's listening. He's hearing your prayers. It's another quality of our God that we did not mention. He's a God who hears your prayers. And he's watching in your life. He knows what your needs are before you even ask. Isn't that amazing? And he says, so while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel. Now, who is Gabriel? He, he came to us earlier in this, right? The Gabe in chapter eight, right? In Daniel chapter eight, we see Gabriel appear there also. And he says, whom I had seen in the vision previously. So that's going to take you back to chapter eight. If you did not pay attention to that, make a little note there. Eight, go back to chapter eight. Because that's what it's talking about, the vision previous. You and I have uh, chapter divisions, and that sometimes makes us kind of segregate things or chop things off. But this really is a flow of thought. It's one record. And he goes from chapter 8 to chapter 9 flawlessly. So when he speaks up previously in the Hebrew reading of this, they would totally understand the one that he just spoke of in chapter 8. And he said, he came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening prayer. And he gave me instruction and he talked with me and he said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. <laughs> All he said was, dear heavenly father. And then God said, Gabriel, go. Isn't that amazing? I love that. It was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So what does that tell you about God, his view of people who pray, who, who acknowledge their sin, who, who desire to bring honor and glory to God's holy name, it's, and also who want to be on board with God's plan, whatever the plan is. So he says, so I give... Uh, so give heed to the message and gain understanding. Flip back to chapter 8. And look at verse 27 at the close of that vision that he's talking about here. What does it say there in 27? Why is Gabriel telling us here in, in chapter 9... I've been told to go to give him understanding of the vision, which seems kind of out of place if you've just been reading all through chapter nine about prayer. You're on it in your head. You're in a whole new subject, right? You're talking about prayer, prayer, prayer. And then all of a sudden, Gabriel shows up and says, hey, I'm here to give you understanding about the vision, not about your prayer. I'm here about the vision. And so he makes a reference back to the previous vision. And he says, I'm going to give you um, uh, uh, he said, you're highly, highly esteemed. So I'm here to to give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. What does he say in 27 was Daniel's problem with that vision he had just had? No one to explain it. Now, let's just look on a timeline and see if we can figure out timing on some of this. Okay, so we know Daniel starts at 605 BC. Chapter 8 falls where on our calendar? Do you guys remember? Mm hmm. OK. And this is. Uh, but it's at the. No, this is not. Hold on. Five. What? Yeah. What is the year? Five. Fifty. Fifty one. Right. In the third year. of So it's going to be in five fifty or fifty one right in there. B.C. 
that's where chapter eight is. Okay. So now we're still in the reign of the Babylonian kingdom. So let's put that on here. Babylon. Right. And he says he has this vision. So I'm going to add that in here just to, on the ability for the ability to understand the connection of chapter nine with what we're looking at here. He's got this vision in chapter eight. Well, sorry, I didn't do that very well. The, the board wiggles for some reason. I, I'm going to see if my husband can fix that problem for me. We'll see. Okay, in chapter 8 is 5.50. Okay, then we go to chapter 9.1. Where, where are we on the timeline for that? Darius. Of Darius. And what kingdom is he? Yeah. So this is the Medo-Persian Empire. So we're now into the Medo-Persian. And it was in the first year. So what, what is our year? 538 or 39, right in there, BC. And so that is going to be Daniel 5. Let's put that on here. Daniel 530. Someone read that real quick. Because that's when this Persian Empire begins. And we want to remind ourselves what was happening there. Do you remember what was chapter five handwriting on the wall and at the close of it what does it say that last verse he died that very night and who became king Darius Darius the Mede so 530 so then when you come to Daniel 9 1 what does it say in the first year of Darius okay so first year of Darius, the Mede. Okay, so now what you see is Daniel 5, the close of it, and Daniel 9 are at the same time, same time frame. So we've had this vision back in 550. You move forward about 11, 12 years, and now you're in this time when uh, the Medo-Persian Empire has come into place. Daniel's in prayer. He has been before the Lord because why? What motivated Daniel to go before the Lord in prayer? Yeah. So he was reading scripture. How true is that for our lives? How often are you in, in your Bible study and all of a sudden you just have to stop and pray? Or, you, or you're just talking to God as you do your homework. I do a lot. <laughs> Lord, I don't understand this. <laughs> That's mostly my conversation. But often it's, gosh, Lord, you're so amazing. Your word's so amazing. I can't believe you're patient, how patient you are. I would zap those people. I mean, I would just squish them. And God just says, no, I have a plan for you, a plan to prosper you. Amazing God. So here we have Medo-Persian 538, Daniel 530, but also Daniel 9-1. And this, who is it appears at the at, to give him understanding? Gabriel. So I'm going to make us a little picture here of Gabriel. He's my little angel. Can you see? I'll have to outline him because you can't see him from back there. 
my very messy little angel. He comes to Daniel in the time of his prayer to give him understanding. So we're going to put down here that Daniel is praying on this list so that we get all our pieces to understanding in here. Daniel prays. That sets our picture up for us. So what's happening now on this timeline is we're starting to get perspective of how things happen and in what order and where they fell when they occurred. And it gives us relationship to what we're looking at in Daniel uh, 1 is what we see is the backdrop to this. Chapter 8, about 11 years or 12 years beforehand, he'd had that vision. He left that vision going, there was no one to give me understanding. But what we do know in the whole consistency of the book of Daniel is when there is no understanding and there is no one who can tell the king what he has had a vision concerning, what is true? Daniel goes to God and God is the one who has the answer. It is God who knows the hidden things, the things which are in, in the darkness for us. And it is God who can reveal those things and does. And it's very interesting to me how God he has revealed his word consistently throughout all history through his written word to the whole world. Anyone that wants to know how many people go to see, uh, what do they call fortune tellers? Because they want to know the future, right? God's already given us the whole record. The future is given to us in his written word. All we have to do is go and read. And how do we know that what God has said is true? What convinces us? That what is going to happen at the end is true because of all these things before that have been fulfilled. He told Daniel through a dream. He told Nebuchadnezzar through a dream. This is the, the, the plan. This is what history is going to look like. This is how it's going to unfold. And each time he does so, as it is fulfilled, it establishes a, um, what, what do they call that? A, a, a pillar for us or a, or a a point of reference that says, ah, he speaks and he does. He speaks and it's true. He speaks and he fulfills. So if he said that about these things, then what can I know for sure about the things yet future? They will happen. Whether you understand all the details yet or not, no matter how frustrated you are as you're going through these details, and you are, I get it, because I remember being there. And I've done this a lot of times. I'm still kind of frustrated on some things. But God has said, I will reveal to you so that when I do it, you will know that I am the Lord. The coolest thing about the whole thing is, is when he does fulfill it, you recognize it. You go, oh, that's what he meant, right? Israel probably was clueless about so much. And we know this for a fact because in the New Testament, we even see the disciples. When Jesus came, they were so clueless. They should have recognized him as their as the Messiah. They should have seen that he was coming. The whole nation should have known. What were they not doing that Daniel was doing? Reading the scriptures and praying, right? He read the scriptures to see what God had said. And then in response, he prayed. But he only knew what was coming down the pike because God had said it and it had been recorded by Jeremiah. And as he read that scripture, he then knew what was coming. And then when it did come to pass, he recognized it. Yes. My eyes have seen the constellation of Israel, Simeon and Anna. Yes. Oh, my gosh. 
Unbelievable. So Daniel's praying. We're at, at uh, 538. Okay, so now what we see then is at the end of Daniel's prayer, he goes to this, this thing and, and he gives us a, a what I would call a overview statement. Often when God is giving prophecies, whatever they are, he will make a very broad statement first. You're going to see this in the book of uh, Revelation a lot, where he's going to give kind of a sweeping overview of the whole thing. And then he's going to dive in and give you some details, the details that he thinks are most important for you to pay attention to. This vision is no different. It's very short, but it's no different. The very first verse, what do we see in the fir very first verse? What's given to us? Yep, he says, Daniel, 70 weeks have been decreed, right? And who is it for? Your for your people and for your holy city. Now, who is, who is that? Who is your people in your holy city? There you go. It's Israel and Jerusalem. This is for the Jews, he's saying. Daniel, this is about you, the Jewish nation. These are for you and your people. I'm, I'm, and when he says it, he says, you got to remember, again, we're back to, it doesn't exclude us from the salvation work of God. But there is a specific work he's doing through this nation so that the world will see it all and come into that faith. Okay, but he has an agenda for Israel's uh, as his tool, as his weapon, as his as his um, glorious witness to the to who he is. So what does he say is going to accomplish? She asked you guys to write a list on that. Make a list of the things that he is going to do. What did you see? Okay, so did anybody figure out what you think some of those things are? What does it mean to anoint the most holy place? Right, the holy of holies. Now, if you're under the old system, yeah, if you're under the old system of the law to anoint the holy, the most holy place, it would be to do what? What would the, they would bring in the blood of who? animals and sprinkle the whole right but in this case he's saying no there, there's something more than just that this is going to be anointing of the holy place because it's going to result in also bringing in what everlasting righteousness now we talked at the beginning of this how do we become righteous can we do anything to become righteous can we kill an animal and sprinkle blood and we are now righteous no what did we learn in the, what have we learned in previous studies about how we attain to righteousness? Through the blood of Jesus, only through the blood. The blood is what gives us the righteousness of God in us. It is imputed to us. It is not something that we can earn or do for ourselves. So here he says, I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. And what else is he going to do? Seal up vision and prophecy. Now, what does that mean to seal up? Complete. Complete. Good word. 
Okay. Well, yes. Come to, that's a really good way of putting it, to come to fruition, because if they come to fru, fruition, if they're completed, then, then they're sealed. They're done. So he's saying, I'm going to put an end to, I'm going to complete, I'm going to bring to its, its uh, intended end vision and prophecy, right? Um, another thing he says, he's going to finish the transgression now there's an interesting one what does it mean to finish transgression context context who is he talking to israel okay Okay, that's a that is a good possibility. One one quality of it could be speaking about the transgressions of sin of man and therefore bringing that to an end. Okay. Maybe in the context of the beginning of it, talking about the transgression that they were doing that they're in trouble for. Yes, very good. Now, can it be both? Absolutely, because both are going to be true. How is he going to do that for Israel, the nation, put an end to transgression, to finish the transgression? How is that going to come to be? When will that come to be that there'll be no more transgression against God in Israel? Okay, that's the Gentile world, but what about, we're talking about Israel, the nation. When will Israel, the nation, there it says, finish the transgression. If the transgression is, is as uh, Martha was saying, is talking about Israel's transgression, which put them into Babylonian captivity, when is that transgression going to come to its finished end? Has it finished yet? Is Israel still in rebellion against God as God most high, that Jesus came and was the seed? Are they still in that rebellion? Yes. Right. I know what you're talking about. The full, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then what will happen? Romans says, then all Israel shall be saved. So, okay, very good. So when will this be finished? The finish, the transgression? At the end of the 70th week. So we've got 70 weeks to finish this transgression of Israel. That at the end of all this time frame, whenever this is, right? We know we're in the church age right now, right? The cross and, and this is the temple still standing. But we are in this time frame called the church age right now. And even yet, Israel is still in their transgression. So has it ha occurred yet? No. So this first portion of this is a broad overview of all the things that are going to happen. The number one thing he mentions, though, is the transgression of Israel. This is why we're in this book. This is why Daniel and his people are there. God is addressing Daniel. He says, Daniel, this is for you and your people to finish the transgression. And then he goes on, adds all these other things in additionally. So what you can know is your list how much time frame should it cover? All 70 years, exactly. All 70 weeks that are that are decreed for Israel. Not 70 years in time frame for us, but 70 weeks 
God says, I have decreed 70 weeks specifically to deal with is the issues of Israel. And he says, and, and when I have finished dealing with that, then the transgression will have been put to an, an end. Um, finish that transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. Now, when does that occur? Atonement for iniquity at the cross. So what you can say is, I, you could almost put a whole bullet under here or a, or a rainbow over the top and say he will finish the transgression one well he's saying that there's going to be a certain time in history when something is going to happen and then when that is finished when those 70 weeks of time are finished then these things are all going to be accomplished so they covered the full 70 weeks so i hope you caught that on your own in your homework and if you didn't make yourself a note just so you understand this is not relegated to the beginning of the time frame or it's not relegated to any one point on the time frame but that the totality of the 70 weeks when they are finished then all these things in this first verse this overview verse will have been accomplished okay now he says this so he said because this is true because I'm going to do all these things. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Um, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So 25 has got a lot of stuff going on in it. And I don't know how you marked it out, but I ended up doing kind of a... a, a list sort of to try to mark out the major points almost like doing structuring like what she asked us to do on your on your um, homework time pull out your structuring list real quick and let's just talk about that I've told you already in the past I'm not very good at structuring I I one of the things is it says that you have to put the complete thoughts to the far left and everything that supports it goes underneath at varying places, whatever they are supportive of, right? My husband is convinced the reason I can't do this is because I don't know what a complete thought is. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely. I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. That is exactly right. Okay, so how did you do on your structuring? Did y'all structure? Did you? Yeah, it's kind of, kind of gave it. Okay, I do it on my computer, as you can see, and you got, and I'm happy to pass this around. But trust me, mine is not probably the way you did it, and I don't think it really matters. I know that I, I actually took the stru uh, structuring class. I'm trying to remember if it was two or three times. I never really got it, and everyone in the room structuring was different. And what I found was Diane Vereen was my leader at that time. We, the last one I did was, uh, no, the last one I did was here in Austin. So I did do it three times. But Diane taught it to me uh, in, when I was in Izmir, Turkey. They came in and we had a, a conference. And um, in the classroom, there was a small group. So we were able to sit around and kind of share our notes with one another. What I saw was everyone's was different. And what Diane said was, <laughs> that works. That, yes, that works. That's still fine. Sometimes you put too much in one place, too much of a long line. You didn't break it down enough. Other people are micromanagers like me and you want to mark, you know, a long list and it really gets complicated. And it also takes up a lot of paper space. So I've learned in my structuring to not quite be, to not be quite as, um, detailed in how I break it down, but rather make sure that I get the thoughts under the right thing that it's modifying or 
or uh, describing. So in this, he says, 70 weeks have been decreed. What's been, who has it been decreed for? It says for your people and your holy city. So I just modified that. I put it underneath what had been decreed and who it was for, right? Then I put my list of what was going to be decreed. And, and it gives that full list, which is what helped me to see that everything in that verse 1, 20, in verse 24, that very first part of that uh, message, the whole thing covers the, all 70 weeks. It's stuff that's going to be done during the full 70 weeks. Structuring is what showed that to me. Without my structuring, I probably would have been tempted to try to figure out where the different pieces went. Well, they do go in different places on the timeline. We know that by just looking at what some of the statements are, but um, you don't wanna put it all underneath the cross. It doesn't all get accomplished at the cross. The finishing of these transgressions for sure don't, don't get finished unless you're con considering the finishing of the transgression to be sin. But he goes on to talk about that one in another statement, right? to putting um, for iniquity, to make atonement for any, to make an end to sin. But he also says to finish the transgression and he makes them separate with a comma after them. So it's something different. In any event, structuring was helpful. What did you guys discover as you did your, your structuring? Anything that you wanna share or ask questions about that I probably can't answer? <laughs> Very good. So those of you who did your structuring, who did you put the he in verse 27 under? There you go. It backs up to verse 26, where it says the, and the people of the prince to come, right? The people, what will the people do? Yeah, they will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And then what else? The end, it's in will come with the flood. Now, what is that? The fact that there's an and there, and it's basically making a second statement. First of all, the city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed. Then it says, and its end will come with a flood. Did you do water? Uh, did you do, water? No, did did you do a word study? No, <laughs> a water study? Okay, where a word study would have been helpful okay. also. But if you weren't sure, continue to read in your structuring. What is the next statement that follows the word flood? Um, even to the end. Even to the end. Now, even to the end means he's adding on to the previous thought, right? Even to the end, there's going to be what? War. So what is that flood making a reference to then? War. <laughs> that the flood is something that's an aggression against them. It's something which comes against them. And yes, the idea of a flood can give the impression of something quick, fast, hard, complete, total, powerful, right? So it's powerful. But if you keep going, it says, and even to the end, there's going to be wars. So it's a war. And even to the end, there's going to be wars. 
All right, did you catch that when you did it? Okay, and it says down there, and what else is determined? Desolations are, it says desolations are determined. Determined, what does that mean? There you go, it's a decree. It's another word for decreed, right? God said it, he will do it. it that is your synonym to the other decree that's stated up in verse 24. And he says, and desolations are determined. Who's the context here? Determined for who? It's all about Israel. And if you forgot that, put a little Jewish star right on top of that, that they are determined. And he's speaking about things which are being determined for Israel. Daniel, this is for you and your people. And he says, and desolations are determined for you and your people. So, I mean, if you connect it back through your structuring to the main title, this is for you and your people, Daniel. And so you have to add that you have to assume that, or not even assume, you have to draw the conclusion that the desolations that are being determined is being mentioned because he's speaking about Daniel and his people. And then he says, and he will, he will who? He who, the prince who is to come. So if you didn't make that connection, then you need to. All right, so now let's go on with our timeline a little bit. Let's see what else we can add up here. So let's start with the time frame. She says it's going to be from the issuing of a decree. Now, what did you learn about that decree? Who who makes this decree and when and where? Kay took you to some cross references. One of them is Cyrus. Cyrus does make a decree. What did we learn about Cyrus's decree? What was his decree to, made to do? To send them back to do what? to rebuild the temple, uh, the temple, yes. And then we went on and we looked in Nehemiah, right? And what, who, when, who made that particular decree? Artaxerxes. And when he sent him back, what did he go back to do? To build the city. Remember his prayer, what was Nehemiah's prayer? I, I was contemplating, I was considering, first of all, he starts out with a conversation with people, checking back about what's going on in Israel, right? And I'm wondering, did Cyrus, had Cyrus already gone back? I think Cyrus has gone back in the third, in, in before him, because it was at, more at the beginning of, the, of Cyrus's reign. I, had, I need to check that one. I think Cyrus was before, right? Yes, okay. So, so now Nehemiah is saying about what was going on with, with those who had gone back in that first decree with, with Cyrus. What were they doing? How are they doing? What, you know, what's going on with them? And when he heard the news, what was the news that, that Nehemiah was told? The wall hadn't been rebuilt. The city was still in, in a rumble, in a tumble, right? And so what did he do then with that information? He did exactly what Daniel did. He went to God in prayer and started confessing the sins of the people, right? And then, and then when he finished the, the prayer, he went to the king. And what did he do with the king? He was, he was sad. And the king noticed it. Apparently, in previous years that he had served underneath this king, even if he had been sad, he would put on a happy face. I'm good at doing that, right? No matter how much your heart might be hurting, you can put on a happy face if you need to, right? 
because you don't want to burden others and maybe you don't even just don't want to share, right? In this case, though, uh, Nehemiah, I think he made a deliberate choice not to hide his pain and his suffering, that he was really concerned about something because I think it was a way of, for him to say, hopefully open a door to have conversation. So when he had conversation with Artaxerxes, what was the end conclusion of that? What did Artaxerxes do? Let's, let's read it. Go to uh, Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. Let's just read that together. Yes, he did. There you go. He gave him a decree by letter, by letter that he could do what? Go back and what? Rebuild the city. And now let's go back to the vision and real quick too. Some of you look up that Nehemiah one. We're going to go back to that. But he says here that when he goes back, he said it's, a, it's from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This isn't talking about the temple. Cyrus went back to do what? Build the temple. But, but Nehemiah went back to build the city. Remember, Cyrus got permission to go back to rebuild the, the temple because at that point, it was still earlier in the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, and he was just getting permission that his people would have their place of worship, that it would be restored. And so it was on the basis of a spiritual need for his people, and Cyrus gave permission. But Nehemiah then said, yes, you may go back now and rebuild the city, Jerusalem. And then to affirm that that's what that's talking about, that that's not talking about Jerusalem, meaning the temple. He goes on to say, how is it going to be built? It will be built again, what? With plaza and moat. So this is talking about the physical city itself, not specifically the temple. The temple had already been in its process, although it was a very slow one. Uh, under Cyrus, the, that, the, the uh, temple had been being rebuilt. So now Nehemiah goes back. Let's look at Nehemiah together. Verses chapter two, verses one through eight. Um, how is it in verse one and two that kind of gives us the enough of it? Read verse one and two, somebody that's got it open. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I have never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you have not since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I came I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lie waste, and its gates are burned with fire? Okay, that's good. That's good. So that kind of reminds you all of what you read in your homework time, like 100 years ago, almost, it seems like, because there's so much other homework since then. But what he does is he gets this, then this king engaged with him about this conversation about the city. And then the king in the end does what? Gives him letters, right, that he can go back. Now, this occurs under the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. So this is beyond this time frame. And what do they say? What do the historians say is the approximate year of that? 445. 445 BC. You've got Artaxerxes. Now I'm going to probably spell his name wrong. I'm going to 
I'm going to hopefully A R T A X E R X E S. A R T A X E R X E S. Whoa. Do you think they could have come up with a more difficult name? No. Okay. So King Artaxerxes, he gives written letter. This is the decree that was given to, to them at that time then. This is the decree, 445 BC, that was issued. Decree issued. And it was to rebuild Jerusalem. It's pretty amazing, though, how much you have to go through just to get to this point on the timeline, right? <laughs> and that, I'm going to give you the scripture reference on that also so that you have it. Nehemiah 2, I'm, I'm just going to put 1 through 8. But honestly, if you wanted to get the full backdrop on that, you could read the whole book of Nehemiah. It's a very interesting storyline. So there's the decree. And he, then what does he say about the decrees? He says, from the issuing of that decrees, what? So here's our, here's our time, our beginning place of this 70 weeks. From the issuing of this decree until what? Messiah, Messiah the Prince. Okay. So when we get Messiah the Prince, then what happens next on the timeline? So let's put that on our on our table too. Seven weeks. So it's going to be seven weeks plus sixty-two weeks. And how much does that equal? Sixty-nine weeks. Yeah, sixty-nine weeks. Right. If you add that together, it's sixty-nine weeks. Now we know we've got seventy weeks to create. And at this point, we only have 69 of them. Why do you think there's the separation between 7 and 62? Good Very good question. Hmm. Well, there, there are basically two things that are given to us if you really want to break it down uh, concerning what is being decreed for Israel, right? The first one has to do with the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the city. And the second one has to do with what? Messiah, the prince. So if you have to break this down now, is Messiah, the prince at the same time as the rebuilding of the, the city? No. So it seems to me that the first seven weeks are related to the rebuilding of the city. And then there's an additional 62 years from or 62 weeks from that point until Messiah, the prince. Now, why is it called Messiah, the prince? What were the references that um, we were taken to concerning that? I think it was in Luke, right? Luke 19. Somebody turned to Luke 19, 41. And it's all the way through 44, actually, but it, it does get broken down into two parts on that. The first one is until Messiah the Prince. When does Messiah the Prince come on our timeline? What follows that statement about the fact that until Messiah the Prince, and then what happens to him? 
Yeah, it says then after the 62 weeks. So first seven weeks have been accomplished, then 62 weeks have accomplished Messiah the Prince. So let's just write that on there. Right? Okay, so Messiah the Prince. He says, and then, did you notice the, the time referencing there on verse 26? Then after the 62 weeks, what happens? The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, those are some interesting statements. I bet you know what being cut off means. Pretty simple, right? Then it says Messiah will be cut off, right? And then what else does it say? Will have nothing. Now that one bugged me for the longest time. And the last time I did this, I didn't figure it out, but I figured it out this time. Shoo! I know. So you just have to do it five times and you get it all figured out eventually. Now, I might be wrong, but I do think I've got this. Um, what do we know about in this vision right now? What we're seeing is Jesus has come the, as the prince. Now, let's read that Luke 19, uh, 41 and 42 first. What do we see happening in Luke that, that shows us Messiah the prince has come? Do you remember that? No. Uh, 41 and 42. It's actually going to go through 44, but 41 and 42 are the ones I want you to focus right now. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Okay, so Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. Let me give you the timeline on this. This is just before he's going to go to the cross. This is what we call um, the triumphal entry. What do the people do at that triumphal entry? What has his disciples gone and done? Yes, disciples went and got the donkey. They put a, a cloak over the back of the donkey. They placed Jesus on it. They took him through the city of, into the city of Jerusalem. And the people did what? They... They hailed him as their Hosanna. king. Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognized him as that promised one that was coming to be their ruler. So here we see him as the prince. Now, this is very interesting because later in Revelation, when Jesus comes on that white horse, what is he called there? King of kings and Lord of lords. Interesting. He's a prince here, but later he's going to be a king. Ah, very interesting. Yes, yes, he's on the throne at the end and he is the king. Right now he's arriving, he's sitting on the donkey and he's come to do what? To become their king? Nope, to be their savior, to be a sacrifice, to shed his blood. Yes, of course, he's king of kings. He has been from the beginning of the foundation of the world to the end. But there are designated time frames, decreed events that God has set into the word of God that says, this must happen, this must happen, this must happen. And these things happen so that you will know I am the Lord and there is no other. I love this. So we see him, he arrives, Messiah the prince, and let's put the time, the date, Let's see, let's Luke uh, 41, uh, did I say 41? 
19, that's right, 19, I knew that, <laughs> 19, and it's gonna be 41 to 44 totally uh, in its totality, but this is the Messiah, the Prince comes. Here we have Daniel prays, the decree was issued, now we have Messiah, the Prince has come, right? And then the next thing is gonna be Messiah will be cut off, and that's up here at the cross. Now, Jesus wept, why? Why do you think he wept when he approaches Jerusalem as Messiah the Prince? He knows what's coming. They did not recognize. Even to the end, his own disciples were not totally understanding it. I do believe there was a plan in that. I, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to uh, uh, belittle or, or in any way, you know, look down upon what was going on in the minds of the disciples. I really believe God purposely kept their minds from fully uh, understanding. He blinded, he blinded at his, at his resurrection. Yes. There were a lot of people who didn't see him, his resurrection, except for those that God revealed it to Jesus. When he came back, many didn't recognize him at first. And he purposely, it says in, I think in Acts where he comes to the men on the road to Emmaus, that he had closed their eyes so that he wouldn't see them so that what could he do? He would take them through the scriptures and proclaim who he was, why he was coming, what he was supposed to be doing and what had happened. And then suddenly by the end of the day, after they've had all these conversations through the prophets and, and through Moses, the prophets and the law, then their eyes were open. God opened their eyes then. The reason why? That they would believe by faith what was written. Because one day he was going to ascend. They would have to walk by the faith in understanding the scriptures were true right? Knowing that they were true. So here we have, again, another situation where Jesus approaches, he's seeing what's going on, and he's thinking to himself, they should have known. He said, if you'd only known, if you had only known in the hour what this really was all about, and he wept. He wept because they had not read the scriptures of Daniel, like Daniel did read the scriptures of Jeremiah. They had not been reading Daniel so that they could they could figure from 445 BC, this is when the Messiah should come. They should have known the, the basically almost the day and hour of his arrival. Yes. Yes. Very good question. And we'll have nothing. Now let me take you back to Daniel 7. All in context, isn't that lovely? Remember da Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 14. And tell me what happens there. This, remember what, tell me what the vision is going on there in Daniel 7. seven Wait, what? Daniel 7, 14. Okay, so what happens to Jesus when the in the vision of Daniel chapter 7, remember, as she progresses through each of the kingdoms, each of the beasts, right? And then eventually the, uh, the last beast is going to be crushed and destroyed forever. And then who's going who's gonna to come? Well, in the middle of this vision shows a vision of the heavenly account that Jesus comes before the God who sits on his throne and God does what? 
What does God do in that chapter seven? It must be starting around 12, maybe 12, 13, 14, right? Yes, God gives him dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That's going to come when? At the very end of all these things that God is giving these visions concerning. So there he's, he has something. He has it all, right? And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And he will put his enemies as a footstool beneath his feet, right? At the end of the age, he will have everything. But right now, when he comes and he dies on the cross, it says, and he has what? He has nothing. Why? So it's a cross-reference that you could put 714 because it's in contrast to what is said in 714 where he will have everything. He will have the, uh, the dominion, he will have the kingdom, and he will have everything. He will ha have all that given to him at the end, but not yet. See what that tells us? Not yet. We're, it's coming. There's a decreed time. We're not there yet. Right. Yeah, exactly. Isn't this just the coolest vision? Yeah, right. <laughs> now that even better than the what is it that that uh, bridge to nowhere or uh, you know I have a bridge to sell you somewhere. Exactly. All right. Now let's. So now we're at the sixty-two weeks, and this is an after the 62 weeks then it says after where's my other color where did i lay it oh here i'm going to rewrite this so that it's in the right color because i'm trying to give timelines on things here for you in the red mostly except i got messiah there so after the 62 weeks then messiah will be cut off so that's why i put the end of that 62 just before the cross up here for you and then it says after that coming as the messiah the prince which is recorded in luke 19 where jesus wept then he says then messiah will be cut off and will have nothing nothing because later he will have everything but right now, he's not done. The works, isn't that cool? <laughs> it was a revelation. God does this every time. Well, listen, I fretted over that one because I kept going, when he has nothing, Jesus has everything. He's God. What does that mean? And I kept thinking, you know, it has to mean something because God doesn't ever put anything in there that, that the detail isn't specific and have a real meaning behind it. But sometimes it takes a long time. I mean, I must have spent, I can't tell you how many years working on some of my other subjects, years. This one, I've been doing this for probably 20 years in Daniel. And this is the first time I finally figured that one out. I went, oh my gosh. And it was because I went back and did this timeline like this. Instead of starting at 445, I backed it up here. And by doing that, I included the, the chapter eight and also the chapter seven, which is before it, right? And chapter seven, so I had chapter seven and chapter eight in my head. And all of a sudden, when he says he has nothing, I went, oh, yeah, because he's going to get it all. But he isn't yet. He's not yet at that place where he's going to have, have 
on the earthly realm, the, uh, all that he's promised. Okay, so then he says he's going to be cut off. Then he says he's going to be cut off. He will have nothing. And then it says, and what? People of the prince to come. Right, or Yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it like that. The prince who is to come. Okay, will destroy the city and sanctuary. So we know that the, the city and the sanctuary are referring to who? Jerusalem. Jerusalem again. So you can put your little star of David over here again. Um, where does this happen? When is it destroyed? What did you learn when you did your homework? At what point is the city and the sanctuary destroyed? 70 AD. So right up here, 70 AD. And um, what I usually do is just put a lightning bolt through things to show that it gets destroyed. That's how I mark it for myself. Um, and so in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. So now we have that much of the picture. We're up to this point of the temple being destroyed, 70 AD. And now what? Well, the subject has been mentioned about the prince who is to come. Now, if it's to come, put a clock next to it. Because what does that tell you? If it's to come, where? when is it? Future. So it's not at the same time frame as all that's going on here. It's something else in the future. Now, if we have 69 weeks accomplished at this point, we know we're still looking for one more week. And somehow that one week must be associated with this prince that is to come. Does that make sense? Yeah. So now we have one week that we're going to mark off. So there's a prince that is to come, you can say in the future. And we're going to mark off one week. And we're going to put our, our one week in here, one week, right? And what does he do in that one week, according to the rest of what's said? Okay. He will make a covenant with the many. Who's the many? It must be the Jews, because that's who we're talking about, the context of all of this. We're speaking about the many, the many Jews that are present at that time, whenever that is. And what is the covenant concerning? What happens with that covenant? What does he say? In the middle of it. Now, we didn't talk about how you figured out a week, right? But so far, we've already dealt with a lot of time references in the book of Daniel. And if you want to be consistent, that's the rule. It's always let your immediate context rule, but also the book context rule for interpretation. If you have a week, what did you find out a week means in when you did your word study? It can be seven years or seven days or seven months or seven years. It can be, in other words, context rules for interpretation. So in the, if it, but seven really just means a period of seven, seven something, right? In the middle of that seven. So what's the middle of a seven? Three and a half. So let's mark this in the middle. So we're, we can see we have a three, whoops. 
three and a half here and we have a three and a half here, right? Oh, wait a minute, three and a half. So far, have we previously discussed anything that happens in a three and a half period of time? Yep, back to Daniel chapter seven. What is that three and a half referred to there? It is, but what is that three and a half of? It's called a time, times and half a time. So we've got um, a week is, um, whoops, I'm, I'm doing this wrong. Hold on, let me, I'm thinking without thinking. He says, in the middle um, he puts a stop to what sacrifice and to grain offering who is that what is that related to what sac sacrifice what grain offering well, yeah, this is again about the Jews and the temple and their worship of God. So what was the covenant about? Yeah, the covenant was to allow them to do sacrifice and grain offering. If in the middle of it, he stops it. And the reference is then, what did he stop? The sacrifices and the grain offerings. And what was the covenant about? It was with the Jewish people that they could go and have these sacrifices and grain offerings at their temple. What does that tell you about the temple? There's going to be another temple because we've already seen it destroyed here in 70 AD. Is there one on the earth today? No. But what does this tell you then? There will be. There will be another temple. So what we know is there's going to be another temple at the end of the age. And in the middle of the week, he's going to put a stop to their grain offerings. And what we know is that in the middle of the week, his time, times, and half time. And that was in Daniel 7, uh, 20 something, right? Does anybody know what that one was? I don't think I wrote it down. Yep, 25. I did write it down. Good girl. Okay. <laughs> All right, so Daniel 7.25, time, times, and half a time has been mentioned before. That was a three and a half period of time. It was also a time when something such as an attack against the Jewish people, uh, breaking a covenant with them and ceasing them from doing what had been promised for them. Would you call that an attack or a war or an aggression against the Jewish people? It absolutely would. It would be feeling that way for sure for them. So he concludes then after that, he says, but... Concerning this breaking of it, what's going to happen with this one who is the prince who is to come? What's going to happen to him? Yeah, he, he's also called the, another title for, for him is the prince to come, also called one who makes desolate. Very interesting. No, no, because here, let me show you why. 
we've got what we know that after Rome comes what? Greece, right? We've already determined that in January. Jan what follows Greece when the day the days that Jesus comes is it is in Rome. And this statement here is and the people of and then the modifier is someone who's coming in the future. And who is the people? Who did this? Rome. So if you want to color this all in in green, it's this guy right here. And he says, the people of the prince to come. And he's saying, Rome does this. They are going to cut Messiah off. They are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary, and it will come to a flood or come to its end, right? And wars are determined when? Wars are determined until wars are determined to the end. So now there's the end brought up for you. So wars are determined throughout all history. Has Israel still being uh, engaging in war and are they still being oppressed and attacked on a constant basis? Absolutely. So these wars are determined to all the way to the end. So you can take this all the way until the day when Christ comes back. Israel can count on the fact that there are going to be wars. This war uh, destroyed the temple and the, and the sanctuary, right? Let me put that on here. This is their temple. I know I do a, it almost, well, it's pretty sad, but it works. It looks like a temple to me and it works. Um, okay, so the, the city and the sanctuary is going to be destroyed. That happens by the people of, and that's the key word here. This is the people of, they do this. The prince to come speaks about the end. It's just a phrasing that's crazy. The people of the prince who is to come. But once you structure it, you should have separated of the prince to come as a modifier to the people. The people who do this destroying are a people who are in some way related to that prince that is going to come. Again, we're back to that concept of revived Rome one day. When revived Rome comes, revived Rome is going to do all these things that we are looking at when we looked in Daniel, when we looked in, even in, in um, chapter eight with the vision there where it was in Greece, what occurred under Antiochus Epiphanes during his reign was a precursor or a foreshadowing. It was an example of what, of what is going to be like in that day. Uh, Kay took us to um, 11 o'clock. Okay, we're, we're done. We're all the way at the end here. She took us to, um, oh, it's not here. She took us to Luke 21, right? I, I found that to not be a very good cross-reference. I hate to say that because I love Kay. But um, I see that as a, a synoptic gospel. Let me see if I can find what I want to show you real quick. I've got it in here somewhere. Here it is. I think Luke 21 passage she had you look at 20 to 24. And it talks about 
Uh, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains and so forth. It goes on. I see that as a synoptic gospel to Ma uh, Matthew and Mark. And so I don't see that as speaking of this time here in 70 AD. K does. But does it matter? What we know is it's a foreshadowing. What's happened in 70 AD is a foreshadowing of what will happen at the end. So they're going to look the same. But what I see is, let me give you three verses to look up. Uh, Luke 19, 43 to 44, which we just looked at. He goes on. He says after he says, he wept when he entered and saw the city. And then he said, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. There's that flood, right? and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation okay the, that's 1943 to 44 Okay, that's all together. It shows you two parts. Number one, that when Jesus came in on for the triumphal entry on that colt and he was hailed as the king of the Jews, that, that he wept because they should have recognized. They should have been reading the scriptures and recognized that day of his coming. They were told it's going to be 69 weeks from the time of the issuing of Artaxerxes' decree. And they should have been able to figure it out. But then he goes on to the second part and he says, and not only that, you missed this, but you know what else you're going to miss? You are not forewarned. There's going to be a war. They're going to hem you in on all sides and they're going to destroy your temple. I've already told you this through Daniel and you didn't listen to Daniel either. That, now, Matthew, give, let me give you a couple more verses on this. Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Matthew 24 is one we're going to become very familiar with at a certain point. We're going to look at it in detail because it also is a prophetic. God says, what, when will be the end of the age and the signs of your coming and so forth? And he covers all that. But he opens it by saying this. Jesus came out from the temple. He was walking with his disciples and, he, and, he, and was going away. When his disciples came to a point and he put, they pointed out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. You know what he was speaking of? 70 AD. Later he goes to answer their question about what's gonna be the sign of the end of the age. So he's telling them again, right here. Then in Mark 13, which is a synoptic gospel, same account written by a different author, same question. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. That one is Mark 13. Mark 13, 1 and 2. It's the opening just before he goes into an explanation about his second coming. So he's, he addresses 70 AD in these three passages, Luke 19, Matthew 24, and Mark 13. I think the Luke 21 passage is speaking synoptically about the same times. We're going to talk about that later, and I'm going to show you um, a tool of synoptic observation that you can do to, in your own homework time. I think I'll have it sent out by Kristen when we get there eventually and then you'll have it up front uh, just prepare for a lot of work because you're doing a synoptic observation on three chapters but they are consistent with one another the cool thing is is when you 
mark the same words in the same color or symbol, pretty soon you see things lining up. It's really cool. That's when you know they're talking of the same time. Okay, so we got to the end of that. Any questions? I want to tell you some one more verse in Matthew 20. Well, this, this is going to wrap it all into a nice little bow. Matthew 24, 13, Jesus says this about, as he finishes that Matthew 24, right? He says, but be on the alert then, for you will not know the day nor the hour. Remember, he gave them some exact timings for this, but he's not told us we don't know the day nor the hour. Oh, got quiet. Everybody's pondering that one. But it's pretty cool because it's confusing. Why does he be why is he so definitive about the 69, but then he's vague about the last one week? Because he tells us over and over. No one knows the day nor the hour. Is the prince to come the little boy? There you go. What do you think? If if times time and half a time is three and a half, and we're speaking about in the middle of the week and we end up with a three and a half something. And on the wings of what does this prince to come come? How does he come? On the wings of what? Of abomination. Have we heard about that abomination before? Have we heard about the war that goes, the aggression against the saints? Uh-huh. So one of the tools that we've already learned is when you compare a like scripture with like scripture and you get everything into the same time frame on a timeline, what do you now know? You're comparing apples with apples. Daniel is in the same thought. Daniel, the whole book of Daniel in its totality is uniform. It doesn't switch or change things. So if it's speaking of a prince who is to come here and he's doing the same things that the little horn does, what does that tell you? It's the same person. Yeah, it's just a different name, a different title. He's also called the man of lawlessness in Thessalonians, right? All right. Thank you, guys. I, I think we did it. We did it right on time almost. I mean, like a couple minutes after. Thank you, guys. Bye. <laughs>